Well, if any of you have ever spent any time with a personal trainer, and I haven't, obviously, they will tell you that one of the more, and if not most important, um, aspect of physical fitness and training is core strength. Especially as you begin to get older and become more top-heavy. I'm told that um, the need to have good muscle tone at the center, the very center of your, your physical body, is critical to take the pressure off of your skeletal structure, your spine. The reason so many of us have back pain as we get older is because we don't really have core strength. And so that weight that tends to gather over the years is being held up by our back, by our skeleton, instead of our core strength, and it brings to us much grief. Well, interestingly, uh, our spiritual lives are very similar. It is necessary for us to have core strength of the soul. And I want to talk to you about that this morning as you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is going to teach us how to have core strength of the soul. When life is going very well, and it does every once in a while, it maybe doesn't show up whether or not we have core strength of the soul, but when life gets difficult, it will certainly show up in terms of whether you have core strength of the soul or not. And because most of us have lived long enough to know that every day isn't a most wonderful day, we're going to need this core strength of the soul. So um, I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 3. And the Apostle Paul, um, interestingly, begins to write in this section... And then he gets distracted. I, I, think, I think Paul was the original attention deficit disorder guy. He starts to, you know, he starts a something, starts a thought, and then he says, oh, by the way, I've got to tell you this about God. And then he just goes off. And then he comes back to it. And, uh, and we, once again, we're, we're encountering one long sentence. Uh, Paul really wasn't big on punctuation, and I can understand why he wasn't. When he started talking about God, there was just no good place to stop. He just had to keep saying, keep saying, and God is like this, and Christ is this, and Christ has done this for you, and I want you to know that you can have this, and I, oh, and by the way, you need to know about this, and he just kept going on and on and on, and so he has in this grand prayer that we're going to look at this morning, verses 14 and on. It is a, one of the great prayers that, that centers our faith and teaches us how we can truly grow in Christ, how we can have core strength, core soul strength. So um, you'll notice here that Paul says, for this reason, verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. I, I can tell right away that Paul has core soul strength just by how he identifies himself. The Apostle Paul, we uh, discover, is in prison. We're not sure what city he's in, but most thought he was in prison in Rome when he writes to the Ephesians. And it would be normal for anyone who's in prison to say, I I'm a prisoner in Rome, but by the way, I want you to know this about God. But the Apostle Paul addresses himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, that's an amazing identification. 
Because what he is really saying here is, if um, God wants these prison doors to be open, they'll be open. If God wants these prison doors to be closed, they'll be closed. Therefore, I'm not really a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm a prisoner here by the appointment of the divine God of the universe. Therefore, I can say with boldness, with confidence, with great settled joy in my heart, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ wants me out of this prison, there isn't any prison that's going to hold me back. Now, I can tell you that that's core soul strength immediately. And so then he goes on to get distracted and talk about, oh, oh, by the way, you've heard of this about the church and that about the church. And then he comes back in verse 14 to what he really wanted to say. And he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. This is critical, brothers and sisters. So, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints <coughs> Excuse me, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask, or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Whew, and then he took a breath. Isn't that amazing stuff? Just in the reading of it. This is one of the grand prayers. And, and Paul is praying this for the Ephesians, but also praying for us. We were on God's mind when Paul was penning this because he said that you might gra- be able to grasp together with all the saints what you have in Christ Jesus. I, I trust today you'll be immensely encouraged by this prayer. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that God's people's hearts would be open this morning. Lord, would we... Um, would we embrace what you have granted uh, Paul insight in here and that it might, be, um, it might uh, move its way so into the interior of our lives that regardless of our situation or circumstances, we would be able to be settled in the immensity of the love of Christ for us and uh, that we might rejoice and grow in the Lord in, in whatever circumstance we're in. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I know this is so important to all of us. I know this is crucial to us. And this is critical to our growth in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we understand and get this right. And he says, for this reason, I kneel. Now, what's the reason? Well, the immediate reason is what you, you find right before it. But the, the reason that he started to say all of this is he's already said a, a number of great things about what God has done for us and the salvation of Jesus Christ and, and that we have been placed in Christ and and the immensity of this salvation and what it means to us and what grace is like and, and how much God loves us. And he told us all of this stuff. Uh, but, but directly speaking, in verse 7 here, he says, um, I became a servant, it says, of this gospel uh, by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let me stop here for a second. 
Our role, all of our roles, is to live our lives in such a way that people experience in the knowing of us the surpassing riches of Christ and who he is and what he has done. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. What's the mystery? The church. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God or the the variable facets of God's amazing wisdom should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are being given this amazing ministry as the church of Jesus Christ every day of our lives to embarrass the demons, to live our lives in such a way that we glorify God in such a way that we bring such honor to Christ no matter what our circumstances are, that we actually embarrass the demonic horde that is watching our lives and wanting to bring disgrace to God. We, um, we need to know that when we gather together like this on a Sunday morning and lift up our voices in praise and lift up our hearts, and many of us have come from weeks that have not been all that good or we've had a month that's not been all that good or we're, we're in the midst of a year that's been, not been all that good and we come in here and we lift up our joy and our praise to the Lord and we offer Him our sacrifices of praise. It brings great glory to God in the whole universe. We think we're um, confined by these four walls. We're living in a glass place. The universe is watching us. The, the, the spiritual forces in heavenly places and high places are watching what God's people do. And we have this amazing ministry, this administration, it's called in the text, to bring glory to God in how we live. And Paul is now going to pray and say this, I'm going to pray that you might grasp how you can live this way by what you know about Christ. That's where we go with this. So there's four things that I want to bring out in this text that I think will help us to to really really come alive with how this prayer is so practical for our lives. He starts off by saying, I pray. (laughs) You know, um, we're looking at some questions this morning. How is it with the core strength of your soul? From From... Places of great external weakness, you can experience tremendous inner strength and ultimately remarkable spiritual growth. From the apparent appearance of weakness, God's weakness. Now keep in mind, Paul's writing from prison. And he's going to talk about the glorious strength and power of God. Now, usually when we want to preach about the greatness of God and the strength of God, we regularly want to bring a victory story. We want to say, hey, let me tell you what God has done for me this week. Paul doesn't have a physical victory story to bring. He's preaching from prison. And so it, he's telling them, I want you to know about the power of God while I'm in prison. And they're basically saying, well, Paul, if... If God isn't strong enough to rescue you from a Roman prison, then why should we trust what you have to say to us about the power of God? It's a logical way to look at it. And it regularly attacks our lives that way. When we see a situation, when we're in a situation that appears to be a weak situation or God isn't helping us, we're wondering, where's the power of God? 
And so Paul is saying, this prayer, I'm going to pray that you would experience the power of God in a fresh way, even though my circumstances don't look like God is powerful. He says, I pray. I pray that the Father, before the Father, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches. So the first thing he says, I pray. And what's he praying about? He's praying that we, God's people, might get good at worship. That's critical for our lives. We're pretty good at consuming and entertainment, but we're lame at prayer and praise for the most part. In comparison, we're experts at worldly. We're really good at consuming and getting what we want. We're really good at entertaining ourselves to death, but we're not very good. In fact, we're relatively lame at prayer and praise comparatively. And so Paul is, is, is really dealing with that here. And he says, you know, you know I, I want you to recognize what God has already done for you and what he wants to do for you. And he talks here about two things that I think are critical for us to understand as we launch into this prayer. Number one, he kneels before God and he calls him the Father. Now, um, as I said to you, we, are, we struggle, we're good with uh, being consumers, and we're good at entertainment, getting what we want, and switching the channel when we don't like what we happen to be seeing at the particular moment. That's what we, that's what we um, become experts at. And he says, I want you to know who you're praying to, and I want you to know who's watching over your life. First of all, it's your Father in heaven. He's not a salesman who's trying to keep you as customers. That's not who he is. He's not trying to, to, to give you everything that you think you want and so that he'll keep your interest in him. He's your father. And those of us who are, have been or are parents or whatever, father, we know something about that. I don't try to keep my kids interested in me by being a salesman. I'm not trying to make Jordan into a customer of mine. I'm his father. I, I've been given a responsibility by Almighty God to bring what's best to him in his life. And so have you as parents. But, but not only that, he says, and I kneel to him because I recognize that my father is my father, but he is also sovereign God of the universe. I'm not in prison here, he said, by accident. I'm in prison here by the express purposes of God for my life. I kneel and pray before God, recognizing that he's sovereign in my life, and I don't get to just change the channel if I don't like the present channel that I have, because he's the one who's decided the channel that I'm living, and this is where I'm living right now. I'm in a Roman prison, and I'm bringing uh, uh, great teachings of God to God's people, and through my suffering, he says in verse 13, you are experiencing the glory of God. So he sets this agenda, important reality for us, in the context of prayer itself to remember we pray to our Father who is watching over us and we pray to our sovereign God who's in charge and has authority over our lives. And those who understand that worship best. I agree with what... Uh, Pastor Stephen Miller of Journey Church says when he says, worship is war, which is why we abandon it so often, because it takes work. 
He writes this, Worship is war, but it is not to be fought over our own preferences. We must turn our energy towards killing the selective, prideful nature within us. We must fight to put to death anything in us that would hinder us from pursuing Christ with all we are. We must fight to worship him with a joyful adoration that cannot be contained. So the next time you go to church and the music is too loud or the leader is singing that song you don't like, go to war. Fight against the sin at work within yourself. Fight against consumerism and disunity. Fight for a grateful heart. Fight for the truth to captivate you in a way music never could. Fight to stand in awe of a mighty God who rescued you and graciously sings over you. Fight the true war of worship. I say amen to that. That's, what the, uh, that's the reality of what we are called to do. We nurture ourselves on passive living that we gain from entertainment when we are called to lift up our lives and worship the living God, which is an active engagement. Worship is not only war, worship is work. And we have to get good at it. We have to get good at presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, being prisoners of Christ, gladly suffering so Christ's glory might be experienced by those around us. Prayer and praise will not take center stage until the big vision we have of ourselves is eclipsed by a big vision of God. That's crucial. So that our lives would reflect in, in whatever circumstance we're in, let me show you how great God is. Let me show you how much I love him. Let me show you how much I trust him. Many of us ask the question, why am I not experiencing uh, growth and confidence and boldness and peace in God? Well, let me ask the question back to you. How much time do you spend with him? How much work are you willing to put into this? How much warfare are you willing to to take on in your life? It's an investment in your relationship that's necessary if we are ever to experience the power of God in our lives and have that core inner soul strength that Paul is talking about here. He's invested a lot of time in the Lord, clearly. He considers his imprisonment a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I have all kinds of time now to spend with the Lord. Well, there's a second aspect here that I think is important. There are no shortcuts, absolutely no shortcuts to security and encouragement in your life. When the bottom is dropping out of of your situation, you need something special. And this is what Paul is praying about here. I want you to show you what he's, he's praying that we would experience. In verse 16, it says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, let that sink in, God is not depleted. God is not scarce or sparse in what he has for us. Out of his glorious riches, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Let me stop there for a second. The way this is written and constructed, it can cause us to be confused. Because most of us should be thinking, wait a second, I thought 
I'd been taught, I thought I'd read in the scriptures that when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit came into my life and indwelt me, and therefore I had already Christ. But it seems like as we're reading here, that somehow we have to pray and ask that Christ might dwell in our hearts. It's uh, unfortunate the, the way the NIV has constructed this in attempting to, to fix the Apostle Paul's grammar uh, by adding punctuation. It has brought one long thought into several thoughts and they should all be linked together with the word that. He talks first of all about inner strength and then goes on to say and modify it with that, that, that. He keeps building on it. This is what core strength looks like, that you would have this and that you would experience that and that you would have this. So what he is really saying here is that um, you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that... What that really means is that Christ would be dwelling in your heart through faith. You're saying, I thought I had faith. I thought it was faith that, that um, I exercised and received Christ in the first place. Yes. This faith is trusting in God kind of faith. The ongoing faith that you will experience in being a believer. And so what he is really saying here is that you might, you might experience the inner strength of God of the indwelling spirit which really is Christ becoming a permanent resident he uses a special word here in, in the Greek so that the, the idea of Christ dwelling in your heart it's, it's, it's a, he's a settled resident in your heart as opposed to a visiting alien that, he, that you treat him as if he's here one day and not here the next day, but rather that you have in your life a settled confidence that Christ lives in you and you trust him with all of your heart. You're saying, okay, fine, I get that, but how do I get that? Well, here's how it works. The second uh, point that we want to deal with is this comes through a kind of faith which means we must get good at trusting God. How does that happen? The major cause for any of us in terms of lacking trust in people who have the authority to have a decision over our lives or whatever is we may not be sure they love us. It is human nature for us to struggle to trust someone who we're not convinced necessarily loves us. And regularly in our circumstances in life, things don't go the way we wish they would go, and we've heard that God is all-powerful, and so we ask ourselves, why am I in prison? Does God not love me? Because he's certainly powerful enough to get me out of prison. So Paul could be asking, why am I in prison? Maybe I shouldn't be trusting God the way I, I have been taught to trust him. Maybe, I, maybe he doesn't really love me because if he really loved me, wouldn't he get me out of these circumstances? Paul addresses this in this prayer, and this is critical for our lives as we live in this fallen world, as we live in this uh, world that whereby we are attacked by the enemy of our souls, to know what is true about God. We don't pray the way we ought because we are really we are not really convinced that God is going to offer the right kind of power in our circumstances. In other words, get me out of this. 
And we're not convinced that God will offer the right kind of power because we don't really trust him or have confidence and faith in him that he will give us what we want. And we don't really trust him. And here's the catch. Because we are not really sure how much he loves us. And if we don't know how much he, and we don't know how much he loves us until we pray and experience and he opens up our hearts to the, the reality of, of his love for us. And that's what Paul is actually praying for here. He says, so I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, in other words, you were saved because Christ loved you, may have power together with all the saints to now in your situation grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love by experience that surpasses knowledge. Here's what he says to him. In whatever circumstance you're in, the reason that you can trust God is because he absolutely loves you in, a, in the vastness of any way you can describe love. He says the love of God is higher than the heavens themselves. The, the love of God is, I mean, when, when we've learned a few uh, weeks ago that when we got saved, what happened? Christ, we were raised with Christ into the heavenlies. It is wider than the universe. It is longer than time itself because Christ foreknew you lovingly. Before the universe was even created, Christ knew you and loved you and in foreknowledge lovingly knew you and brought you into his family. It is longer than time itself. We need to understand that we are, our circumstances are locked into a particular time. When the Apostle Paul was in prison, it was a particular time and a particular setting. But God's love was not stopped with Paul being in prison. God's love was expansively beyond the fact that Paul was in prison. And God had loving realities in his plans all along after he was re would release Paul from prison. In prison itself was an evidence of Paul's love as he watched over him and looked after him and caused a letter that was written to be useful to us 2,000 years later because of the love that God had not only for Paul, but that he had for us. Paul's suffering in prison was an act of God's love for us. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. And we also learn that God's love is deeper, it says in the text. Where, what, how deeper is it? It is deeper than the grave itself. When you look at that word deep, you'll see a little tiny letter in most of your Bibles, which takes you to the center. And it, what, it, what those little letters are is um, they're little like conscience markers. They tell you to stop and go and look. And in this case, it would be Job 11.8. Go look at Job 11.8. As you're reading the word deep, it's like, go look. No, stop. Stop here. Go look at Job 11.8. And it's this voice. Every time you see one of these things in the, in the text, you see a little letter with a word. It's like, go look at that verse. Okay, that's what it's about. And when you go and look at Job 11.8, it tells you what this deepness is. It is deeper than the grave. 
So how immense is God's love? God's love is higher than the heavens. God's love is wider than the universe. God's love is longer than all of time. And God's love is deeper than any grave. That's how God loves you. That's, so Paul says, when you come to terms with that, when you come to terms with the vastness of God's love and how much he loves you, no matter what circumstance he has placed you in, this love is in effect in your life. It enables you to trust him. And when we trust him, we have confidence in Christ in our lives and he settles as resident owner of our lives and we experience what it is to have core, inner, soul, strength no matter what. So this prayer of Paul to give you power by God's power to be convinced of God's love, that's what he's saying, Lord, I, I pray for all of God's people that they might experience and know this love. And the reason he says it surpasses knowledge is who of us can understand love that is from eternity past to eternity future? He will love you forever. Who of us can understand love that goes deeper than the grave? Who of us can understand love that is higher than the heavens? Who of us can understand love that is wider than the universe? But we experience it. I can't understand it in my mind. It's vastly beyond my mind to try and understand the infinite love of God. Why he would love me. Why would he love me? Why would he love you? I mean, quite often I look at myself and I think I'm not really that lovable. Why would God love me? I can't understand that. But I can experience it. And I am experiencing it. And you are experiencing it. And Paul prays that out of the power that is resident within us because of the dwelling of God in us, that we might experience the love of that relationship we have with God, no matter what our circumstance is. Now, while we acquire the dwelling spirit of Christ in us at salvation, we don't get instant core strength. That's why this prayer exists. It requires participation, prayer, time, investment in God. Jeremiah the prophet, who, by the way, knew something about trouble, disturbing times, by God's will and the working of God's Spirit, wrote a little section of Scripture that is pretty popular with God's people. In fact, most of you probably know the text, Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, you know that text. But we don't regularly read that whole section and understand the nature of it and what it's all about. And people pull it out and use it for secret sensitive churches and all that kind of stuff. It's not about that. This is about taking God seriously when the chips are down in your life. This is for God's people who are facing very difficult times. And the reason that the prophet can say, God can say, I know the plans I have for you, is based on the fact that we're willing to read verse 13, which says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. And this is not lost people. These are God's people. We regularly 
stop paying attention to God until something shakes our lives. And most often, we, if we read verse 13, we don't read verse 12. Verse 12 says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. The reality of our growth in Christ, the reality of us enjoying core spiritual strength has everything to do with us spending time with God, seeking his heart, seeking his way. And this third thing he puts down here is is how are we actually going to grow in Christ? Because the point of all of this core spiritual strength in difficult times is found at the end of verse 19. So that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That you may be filled with God. We must get very good at transferring ownership of our lives to Christ. Power to change in our lives is for those who are seeking that change. That's what Jeremiah is talking about here. If you won't obey or embrace God's ways from his word, you won't be rewarded with his works in your life. What we are learning here is about the settling of Christ in our lives so that he becomes master, owner. In other words, Christ is in the house. I'm not sure if we paid enough attention to that. The truth of the matter is, this is the one of five times that Paul talks about Christ being in us. Because most of the time, we've talked about us being in Christ, right? We learned our address. Our address is in Christ. You're so convinced. You're so excited about that. Our address is in Christ. But five times... Paul talks about Christ being in us, and this is one of those times. Christ is in the house. That means that he is to be the owner of our house. If we want to grow in core strength, core spiritual strength, we need to be convinced that God loves us with a vastness of love, that we might trust him with all of our hearts, and in trusting him with all of our hearts, we'll put Christ totally in charge of our lives. That's what this ownership looks like. Christ owns the house. I don't have a seat in the house anymore. It's Christ. Christ is the one who's in charge of my life. Christ is the owner of my life. So we treat we treat Christ, who's the owner of our life, as if he's the owner. And the owner deserves to make the decisions in our life. We need to say when someone says, I want you to go here, or I want you to go there, or I want you to say this, you got to say, hey, wait a second, got to check with the owner of the house. Because that's what you do when you have a house. And we have a house, and God lives in that house, and he's the owner of that house. And you know that... Um, Regularly, there are people coming to your house trying to sell you some gas plan or something like that. Just let me, could I just let, just let me go and look at one of your bills or something, and then you're going to get a bill for a thousand million dollars for the rest of your life, right? Well, one of those guys came by our house not too long ago, and Bronwyn was home. Nobody else was there. She's not supposed to answer the door, but, you know, she did. So she probably thought it was a, a possible boyfriend. I'm not sure. But anyway... <laughs> She's not here right now. But she will hear of this, I'm sure. Uh, so she opens the door, and, and this guy tries to sell her this spiel, you know, and, and all of that. And she says, 
Uh, no, I can't because I need to talk to the owner of the house. That's me. It's my house. And that's the way we are to treat Christ in our lives. We are to treat him as if he's the owner of the house. We need to get good at transferring ownership over to Christ. You have to settle on Christ in your life. If you keep your life to yourself, you will actually lose it. That's what Jesus taught us in Luke 17, 33. That, by the way, defines discipleship. If you want to understand what we are really all about in our, in, our, in our ministry model here at Calvary, it is really this. It is teaching all of us what it means to give over ownership of our entire lives to Jesus Christ. That's discipleship. That defines what we're looking to do, defines what we're about here. And once you really know that Christ loves you, you will, and you really trust him because he does, it will be impossible for you not to be like him. That's what this text insists. If you understand that the Spirit of God dwells in you, the resident power of God is in you, Christ is a settled resident in your life because you trust him with all of your heart, because you know that he loves you with the vastness of God's love, you will be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. There's no shortcut to this. This is a work of God in our lives, cooperating with God and what he wants to do. This is a test of authentic faith. It's not that you believe in your mind the right things. It's that you actually give over your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. As one commentator put it, maybe we should uh, be more concerned about the validity of faith rather than the insurance of our salvation. Not a bad point. Well, how do we wrap this all up? Paul says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Because we're sitting here this morning saying, this is a big ask. I mean, I am in a situation, and I've been in this situation for quite a long time, and you are claiming that I can, I can have this core inner soul strength that will enable me to experience the vastness of God's love in such a way that I can proclaim the surpassing greatness of the glory of God no matter where I go, embarrassing the demons, bringing lost people to Christ in the face of this rotten situation. I, I'm wondering about this, and Paul says, listen, do you know who God is? Do you know what God can do? The final of this is we need to get good at God. We need to get good at worship. Uh, we need to get good at, uh, at transferring our life to Christ, and we need to get good at trust, but, but brothers and sisters, we need to get good at God, who he is. Your view of God changes everything. We ask him for puny things. We, we, we're not sure he can take care of us in, in minor difficulties. We don't expect very much of God because we think he's like us. God is nothing like us. He's not like us. So what is it we do? We, we don't pay attention to this immeasurably more that he can do. We regularly limit the size of God's love to the size of our wants. In other words, if, 
I'm in a scenario or I'm in a situation that isn't exactly the way I want it. I assume that God doesn't love me or he's mad at me or something like that. We limit the size of God's love to our immediate wants. Wait a second. Don't you understand that God is actually demonstrating his love to you by the circumstance that you're in as he continues to minister to you and enable you to demonstrate the surpassing of God's goodness even when the life doesn't seem so wonderful? Don't limit God's love to your wants. The size of his, his love is vast. We limit the size of his power to the size of our courage. Listen, God is stronger than your fears. We, we think, well, if God asks us to do something, I, I, I can only go as far with God as my courage will take me. Are you kidding me? God is more powerful, measurably more powerful, able to take us past our fears. We regularly limit the scope of his plans to the limitations of our preferences. God has a bigger plan than the things that I prefer. You know, um, I, I find it very difficult to understand how God could like country western music, but I think he probably does. So for me, I, I, I believe that God's an eclectic God. He's made so many different people with so many different interests, with so many different cultures, so many different styles. So when I get together in a, in a, a gathering of worship, I'm only interested in it whether or not we're worshiping Jesus Christ or not. If we're worshiping Christ, we can do it any style we want, any culture we want, any language we want. It really doesn't matter because God's about getting glory to himself. So don't limit the size of God's plans by the size of your preferences. We regularly limit the ability of God to change us to the limits of our comfort zone. Listen, um, if you are going to put limitations on God and say, uh, God, I'll, I'll stretch as long as I'm comfortable, you're going nowhere. Because growth in God is regularly painful. He's stretching us. His demonstration of his love is to make us and cause us to be more and more full of God. And that's regularly painful. And what we really want is a pampering God. That limits who God is. We regularly limit the shape of his will to the look of our desires. I can tell you that regularly my desires interfere with God's will. We limit the meaning of his word to the extent of our sensitivities. If you are or I are ever going to grow in the Lord, we must get past the place where our feelings dictate which scriptures we will invite into our life or how we will believe the scriptures. God didn't give us his word and invite us to um, pick and choose based on our sensitivities and our feelings. Well, I don't really like that, so I'm not, I don't really like how that sounds. I'm not really sure I want to embrace that. Listen, if God's word is going to have authority in your life, then we don't get to pick and choose based on our sensitivities and feelings. We accept what God teaches us and says. And we, we have all of these limitations in our lives. These are representative of people in our lives. And we still call him God. If you're going to put limitations on God, don't call him God. This is what this prayer of Paul is all about. Listen, I'm in prison, prisoner of Jesus Christ. The vastness of his love sustains me. 
the, the vastness of who God is and his power will take care of me. So therefore, Paul is liberated to shine forth the glory of God and embarrass the demons forever having rejected God in the first place. You can never exhaust him in what you ask or have a lofty enough imagination for what he can do. Think about that. There is nothing that you could ever ask God that he couldn't do. And there is nothing you could dream up that would exhaust what God is capable of doing. Doesn't it bother you and bothers me that we settle for so little of God? We confine him into the limitations that I just gave you, that list. You need to look at that list and see where you are in that list. Paul says, take off the limitations. I pray that by God's power, you will experience the vastness of God's love out of the treasure of his riches in glory through Christ Jesus who lives in you, that you might experience in your life the fullness of God in every circumstance. Wow. That's the prayer. So ask God for an ongoing awareness to really know his love. Experience it. It goes past your mind. And here's the promise. Everything in your inner life will come into alignment. It'll fall into place if you embrace what God has for you here. It is regularly when God's people finally grasp the vastness of God's love that amazing things happen. Come on up here, guys. We, um, there have been many revivals in our world, in the Christian world. Um, many of you know of these revivals, and they have always come to pass when God's people finally together get hold of how much God loves them. And when we experience and when we are convinced that God loves us, we will trust him with all of our hearts. And when we trust him with all of our hearts, we will rely on his power and not human solutions. And God will be unleashed in what he will do. One of the great revivals was the Welsh revival in just the turn of the century in 1900. Interesting, by the way, we've never had a revival in Eastern Canada. There has been a revival in Western Canada, but we've never had a revival in Eastern Canada. And I think we're long overdue for a revival in Eastern Canada. And it will happen when God's people in churches like ours become so gripped by the vastness of the love of God for them that no matter what situation, no matter what the circumstances, they will burst forth in praising and honoring God so that people will want what we have. That's when revival breaks forth. And the Welsh revival 
broke forth in just that way. One of the great songs, which we're going to sing in a few moments, was used mightily of God called Here is Love, was used mightily of God during that revival in, in, uh, in Wales that many, those many years ago. But I want to just give you a quick summary that it's difficult to comprehend the degree to which the revival changed people's lives. But I want to give you a little hint. There was dramatic decline in drunkenness and bars were deserted. Each night churches were packed with worshipers. In one of the most populous valleys, young men and women walked in procession through the streets singing hymns and going to pubs, public houses, uh, to invite people to know the Lord. And many of the places that they went to were completely deserted. People had left the bars. They had come to know Christ. But in one bar they went to, there was a solitary customer sitting gloomily alone. And uh, the story goes that suddenly the evening air was rent with the jubilant voices of, of happy songsters just outside the door. And, and uh, so infuriated was the owner of the pub and his wife that they started to, to throw empty ale pots at this cho these choristers singing the great songs of God. And so disgusted with the conduct of the host and hostess of the pub was this solitary figure that he rose from his seat, joined the enthusiastic processionists, went with them to church, and surrendered his life to Christ. That's what happened in this revival. Uh, the bars were not the only places that were empty. Dance halls, theaters, football matches all saw a dramatic decline in attendance. The courts and the jails were deserted. The police found themselves without any work to do. Uh, the story is told that the policemen in one precinct closed their station and formed a choir to sing at revival meetings because they had nothing else to do. Can you imagine? Long-standing, this is not made up, this is true, this truly happened. Long-standing debts were repaid, church and family feuds were healed, new unity of purpose was felt across denominational lines. Perhaps the most dramatic change occurred in the lives and the hearts of the miners in the coal mines. Coal mines, of course, are not a, a, a romantic occupation as it is often portrayed in Hollywood. These men did backbreaking toil and, and uh, risked their lives, as we know, lives and health. Uh, but um, when the Holy Spirit touched them during the Welsh revival, it transformed their lives to such a degree that the pit ponies could no longer understand the instructions that were given to them. They were so accustomed to receiving blows and hearing swear words that they couldn't understand what the miners were saying anymore because God had so amazingly transformed them. And uh, they, would, they would finish their shift, hurry home for a quick meal, bath, and then off to chapel until the early hours of the morning, singing hymns as they went. And one of the hymns that they were singing is the one that we're going to stand up right now and sing with all of our hearts this morning. Here is love. Shed for us his precious blood. 
Let's declare this truth now.
So what is your plan to handle the multiple disappointments of life and still be an overcomer? What would need to be true of your life for you personally to be able to call yourself in prison, a prisoner of Jesus Christ? Or on a sickbed to claim that you're on God's sickbed? Or when God takes away a plan that you had on your heart and takes it away for something else that he wants, what will enable you to stand and proclaim and praise and honor our glorious God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? It will be your conviction that God's love for you is vaster than the universe is higher than the heavens, is longer than time, is deeper than any grave, that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus, regardless of the circumstance or situation you are in. This is Paul's prayer for you. This is my prayer for you as a beloved of Jesus Christ. When we grasp God's love for us, we will trust him. And Christ will be the owner of the house. And our lives will be to the praise of his glory. Amen and amen. This is when revival will come. Our Father, we praise you, we bless you, we honor you. We ask this prayer of us and for us. That we would experience being rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus, that we would experience the vastness of his love, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God to the praise of his glorious grace. In Jesus' name I pray.